0: Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight on the podcast, we're talking advocacy on shifts for the visually impaired. Also, virtual kidnapping and the dangers of alcohol, especially as you age. The trifecta of viruses are upon us and opening up your relationship and much more. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now.
1: And now... Maureen's Health Headline.
0: Well, he started swimming at the age of nine. Until 2000, he had swum in many provincial and national competitions, setting many Canadian records. He's the current world record holder for the 800-meter freestyle and the 1,500-meter freestyle. He also does public speaking, and he has been a co-owner of a radio station in Whistler, British Columbia. He also has done advocacy work during the COVID-19 pandemic in British Columbia to advocate for blind British Columbians to be given vaccine priority, similar to vulnerable groups with other medical conditions. He's incredible. He's traveled the globe, but he recently went on a cruise and after sitting down with a drink in hand, ready to set sail, he was escorted off the ship. Joining me on the line is none other than Donovan Tildsley. Good evening, Donovan.
2: Good evening, Maureen. Thanks for having me on the show.
0: Oh, well, it's so nice to have you back on the show. I I'm sorry it's around this situation that that occurred to you, but you always seem to uh turn things, you know, in a positive spin, if you will. So I'm I'm anxious to uh hear your story from you. So so tell me exactly what happened.
2: So back in September, I connected with a, a travel agent here in the Lower Mainland, Dean Nelson, who Highly recommend, because I suggested going on a cruise, I'm I'm completely blind, as you said, and I was traveling alone, and he said, uh, you should take a Virgin cruise. They're one of the newer cruise lines industry, and they cater to a younger clientele, and everything's kind of included. And so I said, sure, I'll sign up, or I will book this cruise. He let the cruise line know that I was traveling solo and couldn't see and would need some extra assistance. Anyway, I, um, it's a Western Caribbean cruise out of Miami. Uh, I uh, get into Miami on um, the 12th of November, and then on the uh, 13th, get ready to board the boat. takes them a while to process me before getting on. I learned later learned that, that had to do with a technical glitch because I, my file was marked because I was a, a traveler with a disability. I get uh-huh. escorted on the boat, yeah, and um, i shown my cabin. I uh, talk to the people at the sailor services. I say, oh, I'm going to sit down and have a couple of drinks just because I want to, you know, enjoy setting sail. And within two and a half hours of me being on the boat, uh, two people from sailor services come up to me and say, um, we have some unfortunate news. Uh, we've talked to our legal department, and unfortunately, we don't have the safety uh capacity in place to have you on the cruise ship as a solo traveler so we're going to have to take you off the cruise and I mean, um my first my first thought was is this a joke is, are you are you kidding me here and so i basically tried to bargain with you know i said i'm blind i've traveled the world as a paralympian i've been to south africa by myself not the safest country but i've been and i survived um i don't really need a whole heck a lot a lot of support aside from being escorted around the, the boat but they said, you know, they even tried to go for a second opinion. They said, no, um, this is what it's got to be, and we're, uh, we're taking you off the boat right now. So uh, here I was in the uh, Miami, Port of Miami cruise terminal. The woman in the terminal who had loaded me onto the boat or, or escorted me on, I could tell was on, almost on the verge of tears, just barely keeping it together. Uh, oh. First thing I do, of course, I I call my mother and say, Guess what happened, Mom? <laughs> yeah, she, she was flabbergasted too. Call another of my good friends, Dr. Briar Sexton, who's an ophthalmologist and also an advocate for the visually impaired. And I think the third call after making a post on social media was to our friend um, uh, Drex, who uh, uh, we know from radio and works in Vancouver. And um, he said, What the heck's going on? And he put it out on his Twitter. Um, the cruise line thank, kindly uh, got me to a hotel in Miami, um, paid for a few nights there uh, in advance, but by, the, by that evening, uh, three hours later, I got a call from the Senior Vice President of Operations at Virgin, Frank Weber, who was in Mexico with his wife, who couldn't believe this had happened, uh, and said, how can we make this right? and we fly you to Roatan on Tuesday, so two days later to catch, to catch the ship. And I kind of thought, yeah, not. I'd, I would have liked to been on the ship from the, from the get-go, but I would much rather continue my vacation than turn this into some sort of legal battle.
0: Right, exactly. And, and what happened? Did they ever say? So you, you eventually did take them up on their offer and I did. flew uh, yeah. on the Tuesday and, and rejoined the ship. Um, what what was the deal? What, where did it fall down?
2: Basically, I think what happened is, is they explained there was a miscommunication between the port and the ship. So when I got on board, people on board somehow either didn't know I was coming on board or weren't sure how to handle it. And so they went into panic mode. And to to take a step back here, uh, i got to explain. We know the Virgin brand for many years, Richard Branson, Virgin Airlines, Virgin Records. But the cruise line is essentially a startup. They only launched their first ship uh, March 1st of 2020, and then COVID hit, and then they got back up and running. So not only is this a brand new company that has been using the Virgin brand, uh, but they're also trying to recover like all other businesses businesses after the pandemic. So I think whoever the powers that be on board thought, we don't have the training to assist somebody who is visually impaired, who is blind. Uh, what, what the heck are we going to do? And so that was their first choice. And the the VP basically said to me, well, first off, you should always ask the person what they need and, uh, uh, as opposed to assuming. And secondly, we're all about hospitality here. And so you've got to make the person feel welcome no matter who they are. And I, I understand it. it's, it's not ideal, but I respect what they, he had to say. And And my mm-hmm. thing to him was, you know, Yeah, pay for this cruise. Give me a future cruise credit. But the one thing I'd like to do is educate your team so this doesn't happen to somebody else in the future. Like I'm I'm glad it happened to me, a guy who's traveled around the world and is okay being on my own. I would hate for this to happen to somebody who had a visual impairment and who had some other physical or mental problem and then was left in Miami to deal with this. That would ruin them. For me, I said let's make this an opportunity bring me out to some place in uh, where virgin is doing a company retreat and have me chat to the team about accessibility and inclusion and how to make these ships work better for somebody who's blind because it's not enough just to say you have braille on the cabin doors and you have an accessible environment on board you've got to know how to how to deal with the specific situations and how to ask the people involved what they really need
0: and, and what happened between, um, you know, they said the, the crew said that they didn't have the training. And then did you feel safe actually rejoin I mean, I know, you know, I know you, you're, you're an amazing skier, you're, you know, incredible swimmer. You're, I mean, unbelievable, you know, highly, highly competent. But did they actually, did, did somebody speak to them and, and they realized, was it out of fear that they said? How did they all of a sudden feel comfortable having you back on board
2: it was clearly out of fear that's the only thing i can think of they had a knee-jerk reaction to Mm -hmm. not being sure of how to accommodate me once they had me back on board they had a good system in place Uh, i um, had the whatsapp contact information for this uh, lovely woman luciana uh, part of sailor services who would come and take me to my shore excursions take me to the different dinner places Oh, uh-huh. Although I got to say, and the crew did an excellent job. But the sh- being on that particular cruise, because I've taken cruises solo in the past, this one was a little isolating. And the reason I say that is because the ship is built for 2,800 passengers. There are only mm. 1,100 on board. So, other cruises I've taken, I've usually uh, been able to ask other passengers for support in getting from A to B and make friends quite easily. And I did make a few friends on this cruise. But Uh there was a lot of times that I was just sitting alone. And that's no knock on Virgin or cruise industry. I think it's just the industry recovering from the pandemic. It's the week before American Thanksgiving. A lot of people maybe don't want to travel. And people who have been uh, dealing with COVID for the last few years are a little gun shy of socializing with others.
0: My guest is Donovan Tildsley, and he is a... Canadian swimmer, retired blind Canadian swimmer. He also holds the world record for the 800 meter freestyle and the 1500 meter freestyle. He's a public speaker, um, and just an amazing guy. And also now an advocate. Thanks so much for staying on the line, Donovan to, and sharing your story about what happened on the Virgin cruise line that you went on. So let me ask you, did they take you up on your offer to educate the crew?
2: They did, uh, provisionally. Uh, they actually just got a call uh, this past Wednesday from the uh, the VP saying, it's American Thanksgiving this weekend, but let's chat mm-hmm. next week about some opportunities. And it will nice. most likely be in some sort of meeting at, in the spring next year.
0: Wow, fantastic. That's awesome. Um, so what are some of the key points, without giving away the whole thing, <laughs> what are some of the key points that, um, you know, a cruise crew on a cruise ship um should understand about hosting a a blind or visually impaired individual what are some of the salient points
2: well i think a good pun salient on a cruise ship i just had to throw that in.
0: (laughs) exactly it was my humor was not lost on you thank you
2: (laughs) <laughs> what are the, what, I, think, I think the biggest point is that everybody's different, and, and the spectrum of, bl- of uh, vision impairment goes from people who are essentially legal, legally blinded and can't drive to people like me who have no usable vision whatsoever or light perception. So uh-huh. asking the people you know, how much they can see and what they personally need assistance with. Um, one of the bigger things is, and they did a good job at this once I was back on board, is you know, understanding that person's schedule in terms of they've got to get to a a shore excursion or a certain event uh, to have uh, somebody meet them at their cabin to Mm -hmm. escort them off the ship and have the contact person of somebody on the ship for when the event is over to get them back. And other Mm -hmm. cruise lines I've been on, like I was on NCL for my first ever Alaska cruise in 2015, and they did a fantastic job at that. Um, Mm -hmm. one other thing I would, um, suggest, and this is more of a kind of a broad spectrum view and not just blind travelers, but for solo travelers, um, having more events to bring people who are traveling on their own together to meet other people, because really that can be quite a good, um, Mm -hmm. friendship network when you're, when you're on a boat, boat out in the middle of the ocean. Uh, in terms of other things, yeah, I, I. Uh, braille, I'm sure like the airlines.
0: Well. Oh, go ahead. The airlines
2: have the whole safety, uh, uh, procedures. Yeah. Like I I'm often, uh, handed a pamphlet in Braille when I got an, uh, on an airline braille mm-hmm. is not always necessary. Like I think even giving, um, information in, in textual format in the form of an email that somebody can mm-hmm. listen to on their smartphone or their computer. Uh, the one criticism I'd have for Virgin, um, they of course are trying to make cruises very, you know, different and nonconformist in terms of how we view cruising. Their safety video was basically people singing over rock music and kind of making a a fun play out of out of the safety rules, which I think is is cool. I like what they're where they're getting at. But I think you lose some of the messaging when you've got it over music and uh, moving too fast. So I think they've almost got to tighten that up and, uh, you know, keep the fun, but put a little bit of seriousness back into, into a serious subject.
0: Absolutely. Very serious subject. And, um, you know, I think it's fantastic what you're doing. I know that you'll come up with an awesome program for them and, or help them to develop an awesome program and it'll benefit so many other travelers. And, and maybe this will extend to, you know, safaris and, you know, uh, in the the desert and, you know, all different aspects of the world, opening up the world to so many more people, which you are so great at, Donovan. Anyway, great to chat with you again. Thank you so much for joining me.
2: Well, thank you for having me, Maureen. It's, it's great to be on the show again.
0: We've got all those uh, Christmas and holiday Hanukkah parties coming up for the season. Lots of people are probably feeling that the pandemic is over. It's time to get back to those indoor parties, those Christmas parties, the office party. Everybody's tired of isolating, being at home, and, uh, you know, time to uh, cheers. And uh, what do we do most at those Christmas parties? We drink. (laughs) A most popular activity at the party. Um, But you know what? A lot of people realize as they age that, alcohol has doesn't have the same effect on them, or some of the negative effects like the hangover lasts longer after the hot toddies, the mulled wine, and the espresso martinis. And all of those drinks and many more can have an impact on your brain. And we're seeing more and more research about alcohol-related brain changes. And not to spoil the season coming up, but it's a good idea to be informed and to understand the impact. I remember speaking to a neurologist a few years ago, and he said, You know, basically, when you're drinking, your brain is bathed in alcohol each night because it's absorbed into your cerebrospinal fluid, and your cerebrospinal fluid cleans your brain throughout the night. And so basically, you're washing it with alcohol. Then he said, I'm going to go get a beer. You want something? <laughs> anyway, um, it's such a socially accepted activity but it does impact the aging process and age and alcohol can be a bad mix you know it's it's totally associated with age you've got to be of a certain age to drink it but it can also age you faster than normal and heavy drinking can have a direct effect on certain parts of your body and you know people don't admit to the heavy drinking and in fact a lot of doctors will ask you how much do you drink And they will double whatever you say. If you say, I drink six drinks a week, they might say, they'll write down 12 because they automatically double it because people underestimate just how much they drink. But I just want you to know that heavy drinking can have a direct effect on certain parts of your body and your mental health, especially as you get older. And I hear of a lot of patients in my clinical practice, they will tell me that they no longer have the tolerance that they used to have, or that it makes them get drunk faster, or they have a longer hangover uh time period or their hangovers are certainly much worse it's something that triggers migraines in me you heard me diagnosed on the air (laughs) a few months ago um it's a for me it is a day in bed the next day um, after having literally a half a glass of wine it doesn't take much for me to actually uh be impacted but alcohol can dehydrate you and as you age you have less water in your body and you also feel thirsty less often and that's poorly understood we don't understand why that is but that makes seniors more likely to be dehydrated and dehydration can lead to confusion it can lead to weakness it can lead to uh, lots of a whole host of problems And drinking alcohol can pull more water out of your body and make those chances of dehydration happen much faster. Can dry your skin. So many women are so concerned, uh, and, and men as well, about moisturizing their skin. I mean, I had a patient the other day say she had this, 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 and thin skin syndrome. I'm like, what's thin skin syndrome? She's like, oh, the skin on my face. She was like 38 years old. I mean, her skin looked fantastic. But our skin does get thinner and drier as we age. It's part of the natural process known as intrinsic aging. And it's something you actually cannot control. Extrinsic extrinsic aging is when your skin ages faster than it should because of your environment, like the sun, for example, or how you live. And that's where alcohol comes in because it dehydrates you and dries your skin out. So if you actually wanna have better skin, cut down on your alcohol, consumption you can slow that process down alcohol can also make vital organs weaker because it affects the way some vital organs work like your kidneys for example heavy drinkers are more likely to have cirrhosis of the liver which is actually permanent damage to your liver and even moderate drinking can lead to problems like fatty liver disease for example and it can make it harder for your kidneys to filter uh, toxins out as well One of the biggest problems that alcohol has, and it's any wonder, it should make sense to a lot of people, but not a lot makes sense to a lot of people sometimes, but alcohol can slow your brain. As I mentioned earlier, every alcoholic drink basically goes straight to your head through the cerebrospinal fluid. It goes to your brain. And over a long period of time, heavy drinking or daily drinking and i asked a patient one time if he was a daily drinker and he said by daily do you mean nightly (laughs) anyway which i thought was a great answer um but but heavy drinking nightly drinking daily drinking can shrink brain cells and can lead to alcohol related brain damage or what we call arbd and that can lead to certain types of dementia people are very concerned about their brain health but they don't actually associate the lack of judgment the organization the lack of emotional control the difficulty staying focused and also irritability and anger issues that can occur when you have consumed a little bit too much alcohol and you know the office party is never a place to drink too much alcohol because we lose our inhibitions You know, we we bring our guard down, we might behave inappropriately. You have to remember when you're at the office party, you are still at work. This is not the time to let loose. Let loose with your friends, let loose with your family if they don't mind, but do not let loose at the office party because you might say something you regret. You may say something about someone you might regret. You may just dance a little bit too long with the boss's wife. You just don't know what um, can happen. The other reason that it's important to assess how much alcohol you're consuming, and we've seen this in the pandemic or learned a lot about this, infectious diseases during the pandemic, because alcohol can affect the way your body fights off life-threatening illnesses like pneumonia, for example. And with COVID, you have an increased risk of pneumonia. If you have COPD, for example, increased risk of pneumonia. So these are diseases that occur more frequently as people age so it's especially serious for older people and by older i actually mean like over the age of 48 50 because you're aging faster than you realize especially if you are drinking on the daily or on the nightly as one of my patients said um you know it is so important that you actually look at how much alcohol you're consuming, when you're consuming alcohol, why you're consuming alcohol, because all of that matters as well, because some people can use alcohol as a drug. Um, if they have had a rough day at work, they're gonna have to have a couple of drinks. If they're upset with their spouse, they need a couple of drinks to calm down. So it's lack of emotion re- regulation it can be impacting your judgment, your ability to be calm and your ability to actually resolve a conflict it can also change your personality and it can affect your heart red wine does have antioxidants called polyphenols that may help your cholesterol levels and provide some protection for your blood vessels but that's if you drink it in moderation what is moderation about a glass a day but some studies also show although there is some controversy here that can be good for your heart. But too much can lead to an abnormal heartbeat and hypertension or high blood pressure. So if this holiday season you don't drink, it's not a good reason to start. So if you're, you know, in other words, if you have hypertension and, you know, you're thinking, oh, well, this could be good. I'll try to start i had a patient who did that who was a non-drinker and he was in his 70s and was advised to drink a glass of red wine a day by his cardiologist and he said he couldn't bear it he couldn't stand the taste and it didn't make him feel good and i just said you don't have to do that this is not really solid evidence that says this is going to you know make you healthier or make your heart healthier as you age try to notice if you're 45 from compare yourself to when you were 22 does alcohol hit you faster they a lot of people will say that they are that feeling no pain happens much sooner as they get older and that's because our bodies gain fat as we age and lose muscle especially in the senior years and so it takes you longer to break down alcohol and get it out of your system and that's why it makes those hangovers last longer and i don't know about you but that's like the my least favorite thing in the world is hangovers oh mean people too i don't like them either um or cheap people (laughs) but there's a few things i don't really like but hangovers are definitely one of them i don't like to get sick either um because i like to enjoy life life should be enjoyed not endured and alcohol can complicate things not only can it make you more likely to get sick as you age it can make common medical problems that are so common today like diabetes high blood pressure stroke ulcers cancer memory loss and certain mood disorders it can make all of those problems worse studies show that heavy drinkers have a harder time with those common medical problems and you know it's understandable also falls there's an association with increased risk of falls and fracture and you know, you fracture your ankle, you fracture your leg. I mean, you break your arm, your shoulder because you've had too much to drink and you've tripped or, or whatever. It's going to impact your life, especially if you're over the age of 65. If you're over the age of 70, if you're in your eighties, it's time to actually take a look and say, be honest, how much am I drinking and how is this beneficial for me, especially if you're on a host events and you know, polypharmacy is a real issue. So many people are on so many meds. And so the older you get, the longer alcohol stays in your system. So it's more likely to be there when you take your medicine and can actually affect how your medicine works. And it can also lead to some serious side effects. So I think you need to take this seriously and take a look at it, maybe have a conversation with your healthcare provider, with your family, I mean, I had a patient one time who was, um, had elevated uh, liver function tests, I have to think now, and, and had gone to the top specialist in the world um, with this issue and, and couldn't get this LF, these LFTs down. And, you know, so her liver went, wasn't functioning properly. And they came to me and I said, you know, how much alcohol are you drinking? And they said, well, they had, you know, been sharing a bottle of wine every night for 30 years, I said, you know, and, and they said, we're just having one or two glasses a night now. And I, I said, cut it out, cut it out entirely. And they both happened to cut it out. He did in sympathy for his wife. And I. they came back a couple months later. He had lost 20 pounds. He looked amazing. He had that one inch of sort of that extra swelling that people who tend to drink daily have, and her LFTs were within normal limits. Now I'm not saying that's the <laughs> that's the reason. It's one case. It's one sample. Um, it's a sample size of one, but it is worth it. You don't know the impact that it's having on your vital organs inside of your body, but you know what I say: leave no stone unturned. Anyway, not to um, be just a total downer here. So, you know, say you decide to go to the party sober. You're not going to drink this year, this month, this time. Um, how do you do it? How do you have fun without having a drink in hand? Well, one way to do that is to review in your head, I'm going to feel good the next day. Fa- Let's face it. A lot of people lie about how they feel the next day and they A lot of people do not feel well. They admit to it later (laughs) um, that they might be hungover. So if you want to have a productive day where you're up early and you feel okay, you can deal with the kids, you can deal with anything, you can enjoy the day, um, remember that just keep thinking i'm going to feel good tomorrow i am going to feel good tomorrow um, the other way is oftentimes people drink because they feel like they're they're socially awkward or they 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 have to drink in order to have fun but you you might want to just mentally prepare for the party and just take a moment visualize the party going well get in a good headspace elevate your energy level before leaving the house You know, maybe listen to some music beforehand. If you have networking or professional goals for the party, review your intentions while you're getting ready or driving over. Just have like a little mini prep session for yourself. That can set the tone for your interactions at the party before you even get to the party. You can do this. You also want to be comfortable. You know, you want to abide by the dress code because oftentimes parties do have dress codes, but decide what you're going to wear ahead of time and make sure that it's comfortable, that it's, you know, with that it's acceptable appropriate but that you feel comfortable and you feel good in it because that that definitely does matter these days there's lots of games that people play at parties and so one of the best ways to be social without relying on alcohol as an interactive lubricant is to participate in the games if they're if they're going on there that is, you know, it it's, can be so much more fun. It's a common activity that will unite diverse and often unacquainted party go to, goers while focusing on the conversation. And it can encourage some enthusiasm and, and actually can get you talking or getting to know new people. And, you know, take this as an opportunity to get to know the new people that you're meeting with and perhaps um, bonding with as well. So, um, you know, the other thing is you can volunteer for activities at the party. Maybe you can make the drinks, although that might be hard <laughs> because you might think, I can't just be making them for everyone. I have to Im- imbibe myself. Um, but you might want to volunteer for the music or something, you know, get your playlist out and, and, and do that. Um, you also, maybe want to dance, you know, get out on the dance floor. Um, even though some people might feel uncomfortable without some kind of, you know, Drinking in their hand, encouragement. Um, but, you know, maybe your participation could be with the music and making sure that it's great music. I mean, maybe there's karaoke. Get involved in the karaoke. Just participate. And and the whole time thinking, tomorrow I am going to feel great. And also, you know, listen, many people think that meeting strangers at a party when you're not drinking is more difficult, but that's not necessarily the case one of the benefits of alcohol is that it does ease people's social tensions and social hangups. It makes them more talkative. So while that overindulgence may lead to some embarrassing or obnoxious moments, people who are just a bit tipsy are often fun, outgoing, and great conversationalists. So take the time to listen. This can be a blessing if you're feeling awkward and and tongue tied in your sobriety, if you will. I mean, you may not, it may not be sobriety for you. It might just be you're taking a break from drinking this holiday season or this particular party, but the person that you're talking to might actually feel loosened up from their drink and they'll be much more comfortable leading the conversation for you or with you. So, you know, can encourage this by asking leading and follow-up questions. You know, um, for example, I didn't know how you do that? Or how do you get started in that? Or, you know, whatever, if they, if they have a particular interest that, um, you didn't know about, or, you know, say you want to learn about something in particular. Um, but if you don't enjoy being around inebriated people, I happen to find them hilarious. (laughs) Uh, when you're sober, it might not be the best environment for you. I mean, there's all sorts of different levels. And you'll probably notice that more so when you are sober at the party, you'll see the one who has passed out, you'll see the one, the people who are flirting, um, who maybe should or or shouldn't be. Um, You'll notice a whole lot more when you are the sober one at the party. The other thing you might want to do is help your host. And that depends on the tone and the crowd of the party that you're attending. But you might Want to help tidy up especially if the host or hostess becomes overwhelmed um, from too many drunk revelers you might want to help with you know cleaning up the dishes or uh, game oversight and that helps you you know become be productive and it's a great way to stay busy and involved without drinking alcohol just try it you might want to offer your help explicitly and sincerely as many hosts might feel they need to refuse help automatically because of, you know, they don't want, they want you to have a good time. But, you know, might be a great idea to help with code check or noise monitoring, designated driving, whatever, cleanup, making sure people get home safely, lots of things for you to do. But anyway, there's, you can enjoy yourself without a drink in hand at a Christmas party.
2: You got questions?
0: She's got answers. The nurse is in for Nurse Talk. Welcome to the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. We've got lots to talk about on this hour as well. Before I get to my guests, we're going to be talking about open relationships, polyamory versus non-monogamy. What's the difference there? Also going to be talking about holiday depression. Is it real? Is it a thing? And I also wanna warn you about a recent virtual kidnapping. We have to be so careful these days. And one thing we also have to be careful with is with the very young and the very old. Flu is increasing sharply in Canada, and this can be deadly for infants and children, and also for seniors as well, and people in between. Joining me on the line to talk about this very important health issue is medical doctor and health contributor to the program, Dr. Tomi Mitchell. And she joins me on the line. Good evening, Dr. Mitchell.
1: Good evening, Maureen. How are you today?
0: I'm fine. Thank you. How are you doing? Good. Oh, good, good. So we're seeing, uh, we're hearing about emergency rooms are overwhelmed. Um, People are waiting forever to get in. People are being turned away. The uh, flu is increasing sharply in Canada. Um, how do people know the difference between what we're seeing out there, which is the trifecta of Mm -hmm. respiratory viruses, COVID, the flu, respiratory virus and I actually should say quadrivalent, (laughs) the common cold symptoms as well, because Mm -hmm. a lot of those overlap. So what basically, let's just go one by one. What would COVID symptoms um, include?
1: And I'm going to give you a basic outline, but do remember COVID has evolved so much from you could be uh-huh. completely asymptomatic to having symptoms such as fever, cough, loss of taste, altered t- sense of t- um, taste, sore throat, headache, the vomiting and diarrhea that was common in kids. We often see saw kids with just diarrhea as a symptom. And uh-huh. um, so that's COVID. But again, the common, the cold can also cause the, you know fever right um, right so many of those same knows. symptoms exactly it's like yeah. etc like they, they can be similar and you can also have them at the same time there's no reason uh-huh. why you can't have two two three viruses in your body just you know wrecking havoc so I think the key with, with RSV our biggest concern would be the young and uh-huh. those immune compromise for various reasons right? But uh-huh. the sad thing is, this year we're seeing RSV, even fatalities in kids that before wouldn't have died.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Like it's so, it's it's quite the year. Like you've been a, a nurse for a long time, and I've been a physician for like practically over a decade. I've never seen a winter like this one. This is uh-huh. beyond
0: unique in a not a good way. It is. That's right. And what are the symptoms of RSV, a respiratory syncytial virus?
1: Yeah. So typically seen in little people, so like fever, cough, stuffy nose, which starts again looking like a cold. But then when you start having mm-hmm. problems with breathing, if you oh look at your child's chest and you see the little chest up moving up and down, you can see their ribs or um, uh-huh. tugging at their at their neck. That is very concerning. Like I tell parents, uh-huh. take a video of that and you show your healthcare provider. Don't let them. Because when you go to the hospital, chances are they'll be okay, right? You show them mm-hmm. what is happening as a parent, right? So I can't stress that enough. So wheezing, grunting, poor appetite, um, you know, that chest caving in between each breath. So that's RSV generally. Mm-hmm. And, it can and those flaring
0: point. nostrils, that's another hallmark symptom, especially in babies, correct? Yeah. For babies who yeah. are having difficulty breathing. And, and would yeah. they lose their appetite as well?
1: One hundred percent. You know, a child mm-hmm. that either parents know their child better if their appetite is not quite the same. There's often something going on. Like it's especially if a child that's normally vigorously nursing or eating around the clock, as many toddlers do, at least my do. Um, you know, that's something different. So really pay attention to that. And some kids refuse to eat at all, and that's really really unfortunate, right? They feel that bad they right. won't eat. But getting that fluid is so important, you know, in mm-hmm. your child's body. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. And this is, um, we're seeing higher rates of RSV and hospital rates associated with that than we've seen in a long
1: time. I've never seen it this bad.
0: Yeah, it's just been incredible. Um, What are the hallmark symptoms of the flu then?
1: Similar to the other viruses like the fever cough, stuffy nose, I'm um, short, you can get shortness of breath, body aches. That's often what I see uh, patients come in mm-hmm. with like, oh, doctor, my legs hurt so much. Like it's just, and I get hot and I get cold and I'm just, just uncomfortable. I think for me, that body ache is a really big indicator. Yes, you get the cold, stuffy nose, sore throat, headache, but that body ache is uh-huh. a flag for me. My and I think
0: a lot of people think that um, that it's gastrointestinal, but it's not necessarily, is it? It's a little bit more around the fatigue and the stuffy
1: nose, the upper respiratory yeah. infectious symptoms. Exactly, yeah, and knowing it, that that infection can lead to pneumonia, but other things on top of it, so it it can be it, yeah. So it's just being aware, it's not just a tummy I, bug; it's more than that. Absolutely, and people can get
0: very, very sick from it. They. You know, they think, "Oh, it's no big deal." And then, how about
1: common cold symptoms? I, um, it's common cold symptoms really are that fever. You just feel tired, malaise, congestion. Mm-hmm. Um, just, um, but it's not as typically not as severe. It's usually something you get over mm-hmm. fairly quickly. You tend not right. to have as bad the okay. body aches, right? You don't typically there- get. Um, uh, loss of taste unless you have sinusitis or something else complicating it but it's exactly very common yeah very common now i see i seem to get a cold
0: it seems to come on for a week stay with me for a week and then take a week to leave me (laughs) it it does last a long time is that common Mm -hmm. in um
1: some people yeah it definitely is common these back-to-back infections but i think some of it is like we think we've fought the battle and won but we haven't Fully, or maybe you're exposed mm-hmm. to some other virus too, because there's hundreds of viruses out there, right? So absolutely, um, but but it's important for the for young children for parents to know that a healthy kid will get like at least about six a year, like that's normal. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about six a colds parent, a year. Six colds, exactly. So yeah. it's just being aware and um, just being honestly just educating on yourself on those alarm symptoms to really be watchful for. And uh-huh. record it and show your healthcare provider. I'd be adamant, like, this is happening to my child.
0: Because right. as a
1: clinician, that is a red flag. The child might look okay, grandma might look okay, but then can quickly crash, especially children.
0: Absolutely. And when should a parent bring their child to the hospital, to the emergency department?
1: Yeah, so if, if you have a very young child, like six months, they're having a fever like we don't even waste time with those ones we bring them we bring them in early or in fact I always say your gut is also important too as a parent most like you know when well usually know when something is wrong with your child high fever that's not going down with Advil and Tylenol again but we have a problem with shortage of those medications which is another conversation entirely um if you're having if a child's having problems with breathing like you're seeing them uh-huh. tugging at their chest their nostrils like it's they're getting they're getting hard to arouse, they're extra sleepy. That's not normal, right? Usually we're trying to get uh. our kids to go to sleep. So like that, they're sleeping on their own. That's a concern. Not being able to keep fluid down for babies, not reducing urine output, so not having as many wet diapers in a day. That's concerning. Or when they cry, there's very little tears, or their mouth is dry. It's dehydration. These are all mm-hmm. things that we need to consider, like the airways, breathing, and circulation. So it's just being aware of those things and just being like on top of it and being proactive
0: and, and not delaying. Although um, with our emergency departments, the way they are across this country, there is a risk that some of these kids might get overlooked and in fact be sent home. And 100%. you and I were talking earlier about an otherwise young child under the age of five mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. who had been sent home Do you, without giving away any information, um, yeah. is this is, I mean, obviously heartbreaking, but yeah. obviously something missed. Uh, is it, is it the result of our emergency departments being overloaded, yeah. the, the staff
1: being overwhelmed? Yes. Like when I used to do ped in the hospital and we have a child that is young and showing signs of distress, we would at the very least keep them in for 24 hours. Uh-huh. But that's not happening uh-huh. anymore, right? Unless they're like at death's door or they've or like their oxygen is tr- like tanked, it's it's uh-huh. it's scary. And people are getting seen later and later, right? If you can't uh-huh. go to the family doctor, you can't go to the walking, you try and try and try and try. Emergency for many parents and people is the last resort. So by that time, your child likely has had those symptoms for days. And in some cases, you've seen weeks, even a month. I've seen that too. Uh-huh. So and then insane. they go to
0: the emergency department and it's kind of toward the end and they're asked to wait 10, 12, 15
1: hours. Yeah. Like we see cases of 40 hour waits and people dying in waiting rooms. Yeah. It, it's completely, mm-hmm. completely um, just scary. It's horrible, but it's the reality mm-hmm. of a, it's a chain reaction of an unhealthy healthcare system that has crashed basically in my books. And, until like we deal with the root problems in the system, this is gonna be the new norm. Like this is this is the, the reality. Like, you know, you were talking on on the commercial about, you know, increasing the number of medical doctors and things like that, which is good from other from the US, but what about Canadian born and raised individuals like getting into the field? But then again, it's a long story. Uh-huh. I just look at the bigger picture and I'm just like my heart breaks because this is this is a lot, like this trifector. Of, medi- of of viruses is just tearing up families and lives are being lost. And RSV has long-term complications. That's the thing people don't recognize. It's not just a little cold. That can increase your risk of asthma and it can lead to permanent lung damage. And it's actually the second leading cause of death in a child globally in the child's first year of life. Malaria being the first, RSV. Wow. It's yeah, that's scary. amazing.
0: Dr. Tommy Mitchell is my guest. We are talking about childhood illnesses and pediatricians are concerned about possible outbreaks of preventable diseases if too many children are under immunized or not vaccinated at all. If you recall, during the pandemic, most public health clinics focused on COVID-19 vaccines. Also, widespread school closures, vaccine disinformation swayed some parents from getting immunized, immunization for their children. In fact, Recent data from the Public Health Ontario shows that for 12-year-olds, vaccination against the liver infection, hepatitis B, plummeted to about 17% in 2020 to 2021, compared with 67% in the school year that ended in 2019. And for human papillomavirus, it's even worse. The HPV, which can cause cancer, the vaccination numbers plunged to a mere 0.8% last year with 58%. In 2019, we're also talking about the meningococcal vaccine that helps to protect against four types of bacteria that cause a rare disease. Vaccinations fell to 17 percent from 80 percent over that same time. Dr. Mitchell, does this
1: concern you as well? It is alarming. It is scary. It, it can lead to catastrophic impacts, especially when I see hear about measles uh, vaccinations dropping, and measles with a highly contagious. Illness, respiratory illness again, okay. and we don't have herd immunity. We we just it's it's not good. It it vaccines have saved so many lives. I'm not just I'm not just I'm talking about the COVID. That's a whole topic entirely. But I mean, these routine childhood vaccinations have saved lives, like polio. We don't even look think of that anymore. Imagine the polio came back in vengeance. Like uh, it's scary. exactly. It
0: certainly is. And also the, um, meningococcal vaccine that prevents meningitis that went from 80% to 17%. I mean, meningitis Mm -hmm. is just such a dangerous, um, medical condition, you know, and, and kids and, and people die from that completely and totally. So if you were speaking to the parents out there or grandparents out there, um, you know, what would you say to them about getting vaccinations? I know more and more young couples who are not vaccinating their children at all. Measles has come back in, in certain cities. We're going to see a resurgence of this, I think, but here are these, you know, uneducated about vaccines and, and medical conditions and science that are making these decisions for these young kids thinking that they can fight these diseases like measles mumps rubella on their own what what would you say to parents out there that are not vaccinating their children
1: um yeah i say we okay first i'll say to them i recognize that you are trying your best to do what you feel is best for your children i understand that but i also want you to recognize that there is there are like 50 plus years of science behind these vaccines that are safe and if you look at the history these vaccines, these um, illnesses basically disappeared but now we're Uh seeing spikes over the past few years and likely more in the very near future I would implore them, I would really express, you know, what are the risks of having polio what is the risk of mumps in a a young boy, a hockey player kid that gets mumps and suddenly is infertile because of this virus like, what are you, like, really set them down? Because most people lack the education. And you said there are people who are sprouting this misinformation, these influencers or whatever. They really don't have a sniff at the bigger picture. And then I'll also add, if we had an outbreak of, you add measles and mumps and whooping cough to the current mix right now, do you think our healthcare system in any way is going to be, going to be able to survive that? The, the answer is no.
2: Like when yeah, you, you make
1: a great have, point. Right? Like we are just, distru- like public health as we know it, like the foundation is getting crushed. And we're not seeing like this is danger. We're already having kids, grandmas, parents, young people dying in waiting rooms, waiting outside and dying in their cars. Like it it, it, it is it is horrible. And to add this is. people are leaving health care. It takes years to train us. Like it's a disaster. It's, It does. I want to thank you so...
0: It it is. I hate to end on this note, but we're just up against the clock. I really appreciate your passion. You're absolutely correct. Anyway, thanks for helping the conversation.
1: It's time for The Bedroom Bulletin.
0: Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Marie McGrath hosting this program. We are in the final stroke of the Sunday Night Health Show, and I've got a few things to Still talk about (laughs) when will she ever stop talking? I know what you're thinking. Anyway, um, before I warn you about a virtual kidnap, just another scam um, to get your money, gotta beware. I give no information to anybody over the phone. I get, even if they say they're from, you know, uh, a utilities organization, this is the latest. And they're just like, just go to your bill. And I'm like, no, forget it. (laughs) I don't do anything over the phone. you know, the people are just trying constantly to get your money. And especially if somebody calls you and you hear lots of people in the background talking, I take that as a sign that they're all working on this scam together, that they're all in some room in Ghana and they're calling you or me. Anyhow. Um, okay. I get this question a lot and it's actually, um, it's not really a question. It's just from clients, from patients in my clinical practice, my virtual clinical practice, who um, will, you know, they're in a sexless relationship. One of the couple doesn't want to have sex anymore. They're happy if they never have sex again, or so they say. And uh, they say, I told them, the partner, the spouse, whomever, they can go out and they can have sex with somebody else. I don't care. But you know what? Opening up a relationship is a lot harder than people think it is. And people who are in happy, open relationships even hear negative comments like, well, you know, what kind of a guy would let you do that? Or I could never do that, that whole judgment line, which I cannot stand. And and people say that kind of thing all the time. Anyway, um, or people falsely accuse them of having a fake relationship. People love to invalidate open and non-monogamous relationships by claiming that they are glorified friendships or that just call it's cheating, but by a different name. But, you know, many people, although many people can have successful open relationships, it's, it's actually more rare and it's, and it's much more difficult because it's, it's easier to approve of the idea of non-monogamy or open relationship. And those two things mean a little bit different. They're kind of, they mean different things they're on opposite ends of the spectrum monogamy relates to sex and open relationship means to you know um be with other people as well so it's very very difficult to make this transition um in your relationship and there's a whole lot of things that that people don't think about when they say oh just go and have sex with somebody else i'm fine with it you know it can turn Emotional, the thing you didn't want, which was the divorce, it can lead to a divorce. You know, people want their cake and eat it too. Um, but opening up the relationship is certainly not impossible for those people who actually do decide that they want to be non monogamous. And so the first thing to do is to start doing some research about non-monogamy. Monogamy Monogamy defines sex and and nothing else. Monogamous couples only have sex with each other, but sex outside of monogamous relationship is typically considered cheating unless there's permission there. The term non-monogamy has to do with sex as well, and it defines a range of relationships with different sexual rules, different boundaries, there's agreements that are made, and every single one is different from the other. And keep in mind that cheating and infidelity can also still happen in a non monogamous relationship because there are so many different ways to do non monogamy. Remember your sexual rules, your boundaries, your agreements. But generally speaking, non monogamous relationships mean that you are permitting your partner to have sex outside of your relationship. And you know, the idea of it is one thing, but then actually doing that, bringing somebody over is something entirely different. Some non monogamous couples play with thirds. So they have these exciting threesomes. And, you know, that's what they want. They bring somebody else into the relationship to spice up the relationship to make things more exciting. Other non monogamous couples play with outside partners individually. So they may seek somebody else. And again, it can be for the same. Reason it can be for boredom, but what I see or what the idea that is floated in my clinical practice is let him go and have sex with somebody else I don't care, and let us stay married um so some people may have sex with one special person, but you know what it's hard, very very difficult not to get emotionally connected to somebody that you're that intimate with, and that's one of the of the issues that people who Float this idea and say, This is the solution to our sexless marriage. Don't bother me anymore. Just go have sex with somebody else. But that can actually turn into a relationship, and people don't think about that. So sometimes it's just one person in the relationship going outside of the relationship and having sex with somebody. Sometimes it's both of you and then coming back to one another. Sometimes non monogamous couples will make an allowance for sex outside the relationship only with certain people or for example, on certain situations. So for example, when you go on a business trip, you can have sex with somebody else. Just don't tell me about it. There's those types of agreements as well. Some non-monogamous couples have no sexual restrictions. Do whatever you like, whenever you like, with whomever you like, with or without your partner's knowledge. And those are more considered open relationships. And that is different from a non-monogamous one as being fully open is only one version of non monogamy. So, as I said, open is on one end of the spectrum and non monogamy on the other. But, and most non monogamous couples fall somewhere on that scale. Very few are completely open because it's very difficult to have an, a completely open relationship. Some people think they're in an open relationship. <laughs> Some people believe they're in a non-monogamous relationship. I actually had a friend who said that she had met somebody, I forget, somewhere, and then that guy asked her to go for to meet and talk about business, but it, it was at lunch, and then they sat at the bar, and she thought that was a little strange that they were sitting at the bar at lunch, and then she was asking him where he lived, and he was kind of being a little cryptic, and then... Finally, what fell out of his mouth was, we live, and she said, we, who's we? And he said, oh, well, my wife and I, but we're not that kind of married couple. Anyway, so I'm not sure that the wife would have agreed on that. But so some people think their relationships are non-monogamous when they're not, (laughs) and some people believe they're open when they're not either. There's a lot of great resources out there for you to do some more research on this to see if non-monogamy or an open relationship is something for you. And of course there's lots of great articles online that you can read, but definitely I suggest, and I'll give you the list of books if if this is of any interest to you whatsoever, but it's very important that you do some research, gain a basic knowledge of non-monogamy and non-traditional relationships. We're seeing a lot of younger people entering into these types of relationships early on out of the gates um and you know a lot of people get bored in their relationship sexually very early on um there is an online culture of progressive people uh who use a lot of you know therapeutic and mental health terms and many people leading the discourse on non-monogamy are therapists so um and i think in part because they have dealt with patients who have Been in open relationships, been in non monogamous relationships, have had issues, and then they've had to deal with the fallout that these couples have experienced as well. But one great book is The Ethical Slut by Janet Hardy and Dossie Easton. So that's just something to pick up if you would like to look a little bit deeper into this non monogamy in your relationship. I'm not saying that it's the cure for boredom in the bedroom, I'm not saying it's the cure for a sexless marriage. It's what couples come up with it's what one person in the relationship comes up with and typically the person who's given been given the carte blanche go and have sex with whomever you want doesn't want to do that. they want to have sex with their spouse typically so that's another whole whole issue but sometimes you have to just get through all of the layers all of the issues, all of the emotional dysregulation, all of the anger, all of the resentment and everything that has built up over the years. Um, before you can get back to a respectful relationship that it has intimacy, where you're intimate, where you can be intimate again with your partner and where you can have sex and actually have great sex as well. So this is not, by no means am I suggesting that this is the, Uh, uh, The treatment for a sexless relationship or a sexless marriage. Another great book is called Designer Relationships, A Guide to Happy Monogamy, Positive Polyamory and Optimistic Open Relationships. And that's by Mark Michaels and Patricia Johnson. And there is um, another book and it is called, and I'm just trying to think of the author's name. I can't think about think of it, but the, na- the name of the book is My Love is a Beast, Confessions. Um, and I'm trying to think about that. Anyway, another great resource is, is your friends. Maybe some of your friends are in non-monogamous relationship. So, you know, good idea to talk to couples who are in non-monogamous relationships. They can be one of your best resources if they have shared that with you. Don't judge them. Just talk openly with them. Ask them about how they communicate, how they deal with feelings of jealousy, because feelings of jealousy will arise, and how they started being non-monogamous and how it's working out for them. And then, of course, you can always seek the wisdom of a therapist or a couples counselor or a sexual health educator. And it, this can be a gift that you give to yourself. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.